Hello. So I guess there, I, just to remind everybody of what the uh, what the procedure is for this. Huh? However, I've flipped too many pages in my document. So. Also, there's just a, li a little bit of a line. Rest assured, you guys, that we're going to get to everybody we can until the Palladium or the cops or somebody kicks us out of the room, okay? So we're going to get to as many of you as possible. Okay. All right. Are we ready? Oh, yeah. So I'm going to go, hello. Check, check. We have a check on each of these mics. Check. Microphone check. Down, please? check. Check, check, check. Okay. Right. <laughs> also, if your question has already been asked, as a courtesy to the other people, don't ask it again. Just kindly get off the line and sit down. Um, we're going to have a soft two-minute clock here. You'll see the clock, I think. They can see it? Yes? I don't know, I can't see it. Um, and so you can have, you can reserve it for your question, or one question, um, or then you can get back on the line if you have another, or you can make a comment. Okay. Uh, is it two minutes per question, for, or is it two minutes total for everything? Two minutes total for everything. Okay. Oh, All right. So That's... are we ready here at the dais? That's not okay. good. Lean and mean. And will you please uh, say your name too? Lean and mean. Uh, Mike number one, please. Uh, hello, my name is Kai Jordan. Uh, I'm a working voice actor. And um, so I just want to say before I ask, uh, everybody, thank you for your efforts. It's honestly appreciated. That said, I honestly do not feel comfortable as a dubbing voice actor with this current thing if it goes through. It, I'm horrified for my future and everyone else's future, and I cannot. I, I've already voted. I've already made my decision. I'm voting no, and I wanted to ask. But why? I, a friend of mine wanted to ask. I have read that SAG-AFTRA's membership has never failed to ratify a contract before. What if we send it back? That's that's what I want to ask. Thank you. Sure. So yeah, let's. Let, thank you for starting with the hard question. I appreciate it. That's okay. What happens if this contract isn't ratified? So I mean, let's be real about it. Because what happens if this contract isn't ratified is we have to go back to the negotiating committee and the national board and decide what to do next. So it seems obvious that if this contract is not ratified, we're not just going to go back into negotiations. Because why would we think that if this contract is rejected, that all of a sudden the companies are just going to offer more or do something that you would view as better? So that really leaves us with only really one path, which would be to attempt to restart a strike and go back on strike against these companies for an indeterminate period of time until something happened that made us think we could reach a, an agreement that the members would ratify. Um, that would either mean that the strike lasted so long that members changed their mind and decided to ratify it anyway, or it would mean that the companies would decide to offer something that they haven't already offered. From every indication I have, based and you know, there are negotiating committee members and others here who may have different views or whatever, but um, we have no indications from these companies that they would be willing to offer more than this. We went on strike for 118 days to get this. We extracted last minute concessions from them um, based on the timing of this. When, in my view, we went to the moment of peak leverage, the moment when they were forced to make decisions about canceling shows and canceling projects for next year. 
And that's how we extracted the final concessions in generative AI and others um, and, on this, and on the streaming uh, bonus uh, money as well. So, um, so I think just being really realistic, if this contract is voted down, then you should expect that we will need to go back on strike and we'll need to go on back on strike for a significant period of time uh, before we will figure out if we are able to achieve something different that members would be happier with. And I guess I would just wrap up that answer by saying, um, you know, collective bargaining is, it's a negotiation. And even when you go on strike, you know, going on strike, it's not a genie, it doesn't give you wishes. Going on strike adds leverage to your toolbox and that's what you then use to get where you want it to go. We couldn't get anywhere near this by July 12th. That's why we went on strike. We use that leverage to get the deal that we've just talked to you about. And so just recognize that, you know, a non-ratification of this deal doesn't mean we're gonna get something better. And in my experience, it results in the opposite of that, which is the companies getting entrenched against us, feeling like they offered this and then we rejected it. And we probably have to go back and have a real fight just to keep up with where we are now. So just be aware that that is a real risk of not ratifying this deal. The last thing I just wanna say about it is, remember that there are no restrictions on AI right now in this contract. So one of the things that companies do when you reach an impasse, they didn't do it in this case, and traditionally they haven't done it in this industry, but in the event of a non-ratification, they certainly could do this, which is bargain to impasse and then implement unilaterally their last, best, and final offer. That last, best, and final offer could have much less or even no regulations on AI in it. So as much as I understand people being really scared about what could happen with AI in this industry, my question to you would be, do you really feel you'd be better off with no AI regulation at all than what we just talked about in terms of the AI regulation we've negotiated? Because that is a very real possibility of a non-ratification of this deal. Thank you, thank you so much. Okay, order please. Okay, thank you. Um, mic two, please. Hello, one, two, hello, yes. hi. I know a lot of you, you know a lot of me. Uh, my name is Christian Telesmara. I am a newly elected LA local board member. Yes, yes. Um, and I'm here with the wonderful Jeff Torres. Hi, Jeff Torres. Nice. Hi, how are you doing? Strike captain extraordinaire. Uh, we have a very similar question, so we're just going to join together, right? Why not? Um, I do want to preface, he wrote, a very, he wrote it very well, so I'm going to have him ask the question, but I do want to preface the importance of our, withholding our labor during a strike. That's the strongest leverage we have. It's very important, and AI, the way it's written right now, is leading me to think we might lose that leverage. So I'm gonna have Jeff ask the question specifically. Okay, so you guys have said repeatedly that lack of consent for a digital replica usage can be used as a condition of employment, right? So you guys have said that. So likely that detailed consent will be given before we shoot or get contracted. Like you guys said, e.g. for insurance purposes. It's really dark, right? With that consent, if the studio's producers abide by that consent they receive from you, they shoot the script as is, nothing changes that requires additional consent, can they use our digital replicas, principal or background, employment-based or independently created to finish projects, whether a film or a TV episode, specifically like Marvel or a big budget production, while we are on strike, or a synthetic performer, while we are on strike, can they do that? So, so that's a great question. The answer, first of all, let me just say, you may remember 
that after we went on strike, there was content that had been created prior to the strike for the explicit purpose of being used after we went on strike. For example, for EPKs and promotional materials for theatrical movies, et cetera, et cetera. So could they do something similar to that or finish out projects with digital replicas if they had achieved sufficient specific uh, informed consent? Yes, they could do that. But, but let me, <laughs> I see your expression, I hear you. But they have to have the specific detailed informed consent. So if you're talking about like a television series, for example, right, it is not, it is unlikely they're gonna be able to finish out a series with sufficiently detailed inf informed consent from things that they got for episode one to continue on through multiple episodes. So should they, could they finish out an episode or maybe two? It's possibility. Um, could they finish out a series? I think it's very unlikely they'd be able to have sufficient detailed consent to do that. And so that's why the consent provisions are so crucial and so important. And of course, once a strike began, members would not be granting any further consent. They wouldn't grant any consent for promotional work. They wouldn't grant any consent for anything. And so that would rapidly come to a close. Just turn my mic back. But, but like if they got it before the strike, that's the importance of it. They got yeah. the consent before the strike then we cannot withhold our labor. So let me, let me ask you, well, I guess I shouldn't ask you a question, but let me pose a hypothetical question to you. So, you know, in 2008, the writers went on strike. In 2023, the writers went on strike. Studios knew the writers might go on strike. Studios got some episodes of, ser of a series written by writers, and then they shot some of those episodes of series after the writer's strike began, before our strike started, right? But in 2008, and again in 2023, the writer's strike had a significant and immediate impact on shutting down the industry, even though there were scripts that had already been written and there were projects that, that those writers had worked on in advance of that strike. So I think that it's important to recognize what you're saying is a legitimate concern, but it's also important not to um, make it a larger concern than it really is. And I think just along the lines of the writer's strike, a sag after strike in an environment where reasonably specific, detailed, informed consent is required is not going to be um, deterred for any significant period of time. I have 18 seconds. I'll take the 18 seconds. Um, what about promotional material, right? They could still use AI to finish promotional material, maybe even have our AIs represent us at conventions while we are on the picket line and our voice and our likeness. Um, is there, do you see any limitations there? Because that can be approved and given the consent prior to the strike and then we are now losing that leverage. Because I think we all have seen how much our withholding our labor has impacted their box office, impacted the ability for them to promote their, their projects. It's a huge leverage and I, I don't know, maybe you could tell me they have to write the script for the promotion before they, we can consent to it. I don't know. It doesn't say that in the contract. I don't know. It's, it just says yeah. specify. It says reasonably specify. And I think it's, that reasonably specify is very vague. And I don't know if it's just, it's, it's, it's not specific enough, you know? So it's hard to kind of to trust that we have enough protection now. And just like streaming, if we get if we, streaming, the first way we enter that into the contract, it, does, it sets the tone. And if we don't set the tone of this first negotiation, we'll be behind, we'll be behind the way trying to fight to get back in front of it. And I just want to make that a consideration for everybody here. Okay, no, thank I, you so much. And I, I appreciate what you said, Christian, but I guess a couple of things I just want to point out. Number one, the fact is, 
promotional work was done prior to the strike. EPKs were shot, promotional videos were shot. That stuff tapped out within a matter of days or weeks after that, and it didn't cause a diminution in the power of our strike. And in fact, so many, so many theatrical exhibitions were postponed because of that, even though months before they knew they could have shot that stuff. So I think we've got to be reasonable about how we approach that. And as far as reasonably specific goes, um, you know, our lawyers have said that they think that that, I mean, reasonably specific is a term of art. It's a legal term that has an enforceable definition. And it's something that we feel confident that we can enforce in the event that something like that happens. So I understand what you're saying completely, but I just want to remind everybody, this is a negotiation. This is not, you know, we don't get to go out and just dictate what ends up in this contract. A strike gives us a lot of leverage. It doesn't give us the power to just say everything we want is going to happen. And we negotiated hard over each and every provision in the AI section. So That's don't true. think that you know we could have just said, oh, well, we, we would have liked language that would have been better than that. That language was hard fought over. Reasonably specific was hard fought over. They didn't want that. They felt that was far too limiting. So just be aware that, that that's the reality of this language and our lawyers feel very confident that we can enforce it if push comes to shove. Okay, thank you. Um, the woman at mic one, please, thank you. Hey, I'm Vivia Armstrong, thank you all for everything. Question regarding the streaming um, longevity eight to 10 year mark that you mentioned, is that regarding the show being specifically on one platform or is that regarding the show itself, period? Because some shows jump from one platform to the next and they don't stay on it possibly for eight to 10 years, although that is still being um, discovered as far as how long they may stay on them. I'm noticing a lot of platforms may just keep it for a couple of months to maybe a year or two. So I'm asking, is that going to apply to the show itself or only to an individual platform? And question regarding the casting sites, does that mean that they can no longer, sites like casting uh, networks or Actors Access can no longer charge per submission? Or how does that apply to this new uh, casting requirement and payments? Sure, so to respond to your first question, the increases for uh, the percentages for exhibition years eight through 11 will apply for the continued exhibition of that program on that platform. If the program moves to another platform, a different residual kicks in. So for example, if it moves from one streaming platform to another streaming platform, they will have to pay 3.6% of that license fee, whatever they get for that, to the cast. So the, the increases to those exhibition years apply under the formula that governs continued what you pay for continued exhibition on that platform, but there are other residuals that kick in if it moves to another platform. Um, with respect to the casting sites, I mean, the long and short of it is, Yes, they will have to provide you with a mechanism for sub submitting yourself and obtaining the audition materials that you don't have to pay for. It's, so I may no longer have to pay for like a casting networks or something like that. And then with that, does it end up being more beneficial for it to stay on one platform or for it to jump from platform to platform? I think it's very difficult to say because you don't know what license fee gets negotiated when it gets jump to another platform, um, it really, it, it will vary. 
uh, whether the fixed residual that you get for continued exhibition would be better or whether you're better off. It's gonna depend on the license fee that they negotiate to that next platform. And just to point out, I mean, it doesn't have to be exclusively one or the other. So if it's a non-exclusive license, for example, it could stay on the first platform. You can continue to collect that residual. And in addition to that, you would get an additional residual if it also appeared on a second platform. Okay, so I do request that over time you all monitor how that works so you can, in future negotiations, be able to have it for the best deal, especially if they're jumping platforms, which seems to be pretty common. Thank you all so much. Thanks, and can I, can I just ask, I just would ask everybody also to, after the effective date of this provision, to let us know if you find that there are casting platforms that are attempting to charge fees for submissions, for access to sides, any of that stuff for SAG-AFTRA covered projects. Because after approximately the 10th of December, that should no longer be happening, uh, assuming this contract is ratified. And we would want you to let us know so that we can um, take action in the event that anybody is continuing to do that. And I should, I should note, that doesn't mean they have to get rid of subscriptions. It means they can't make you sign up for a subscription to get access to size, to submit a self-tape, and they can't give any preferential treatment for someone who does sign up for a subscription. So if you find out any of those things are happening, we want to know about it. Okay, great. Mike, too. Hello. Hi, I'm Jillian Clare, also a newly elected LA local board member. And... <laughs> And the co-chair of the LA Young Performers Committee, my question is based on concerns I've read specifically from that community. Will there be any additional protections for minors regarding AI and the MOA, i.e., is there a certain amount of time a company can keep a minor's digital replica after the project or franchise has finished? Any special consideration for how it is stored? And if companies are allowed to keep the replicas past the project's completion, what happens to their digital replica when they turn 18? Additionally, was there an advisor who works in minors' rights and child protection that was brought on to advise on minors in AI? So thanks for those questions. So first of all, let's just note that um, for minors in general, there is a legal framework that allows minors to disavow contracts when they turn 18. So with respect to things like the ability to make use of consent that was granted, let's say by a parent or guardian while a minor is under 18, that ability to use that can be disavowed by the minor when they turn 18 unless the company uh, with the cooperation of the parent or guardian goes and gets court confirmation of those commitments made while the minor is under 18. So there will be an ability, setting aside situations where a court has independently approved those consents or the, those contract terms, there will be an ability for minors to disavow those contract provisions, including consents that have been granted upon reaching the age of majority. I will just flag, um, you know, for young performers, there's a certain window period to do that. You, you, you need to investigate that to make sure that you um, are following all the procedural requirements depending on what state you live in, uh, because that's a matter of state law. So there's no special provisions in this contract uh, as it relates to AI and young performers regarding retention of digital replicas. There is not a provision that limits the companies in terms of how long they can retain a digital replica, but there, of course, are all of the provisions that require them to obtain informed consent uh, before making any use of a digital replica that they have retained. 
uh, as far as um, whether there was any specific, there was not any specific young performer AI consultants for this negotiation. Obviously, we consulted with um, several various people regarding AI provisions, both people within our committee and people outside of the negotiating committee, including outside experts. Uh, but not, I don't think there was anyone who was designated as specifically focused on young performer <laughs> issues as they relate to AI in this negotiation. And the only other thing I would just mention as far as young performers is obviously there are certain provisions that are specific to young performers outside of the AI section that may relate, such as, for example, the extended time available for young performers to complete self-tapes or work hour limitations and things like that, all of which you know, apply as appropriate to a digital replica environment. Thanks. I would Thanks. just ask that during the next negotiations, we do have somebody in there who is voicing the concerns for AI with young performers. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much, Jillian. Cheryl, hello. Yes, hi. I'm Cheryl Bricker, SAG number 1072910. I know that now for picketing a lot. So um, Get closer to the mic, Cheryl. Yes, I will do that for you. Uh, so... Um, I'm very hard to thank you, as everyone has said, for I, your many hours of hard work. Uh, I am very hard to hear you. Uh, so many personalities. Like, I know. Uh, the privilege of reading the document that the board it's, read. It's fascinating. Yeah. Instead yeah. of the Bill Barr issue that we've got now. So, because part of what my problem with this is that I'm, and I, I know I heard you say about legal language, but I'm disturbed by the use of the words like generally and reasonably specific and good faith effort. I don't know what that is, and I've heard nothing about how those are enforced and by whom. Uh, much like I don't really understand when you're saying you're de-incentivizing by making it too expensive, AI for vocal or image or whatever. You want to make it too expensive so they want to use actors. Haven't heard anything about how that's enforced. My big well, now, I have many concerns, but the one concern is about streaming, that you're talking about this success being a 90 days when it launches, a new show launches. What makes you think that a streaming service won't bury that and on day 91 it becomes a success? I mean, I, I, again, I don't know how, if I figured this out, they're way ahead of it. So, what about the enforcement of this? Who's enforcing? How are you enforcing it? What, is it? what are the deets? Thank you. Duncan? Yes. So, first of all, just, just to clear up something, the board hasn't read the MOA. No one has read it because it's not complete. So, the board reviewed the exact summary that you have in the, that has been published, the 18-page summary. That's what the board also reviewed in terms of reviewing this agreement. So I just wanna be, be clear about that. There's not a completed MOA that's being held back from anybody. The MOA is being worked on as we speak with the goal of getting it published to you as soon as possible. And again, I wanna just remind everybody that is how every contract ratification in this union has been done. Certainly in the 23 years that I've worked here and long before that from what I've been told. So um, I just want you to know that there's not some there's not something different being done this time other than us like working really hard to get the MOA done so we can publish it so that you can all see it. So, um, and we will do that as soon as possible. Um, as far as the concerns about the terms like reasonably specific and good faith efforts, I mean, just so you know, when you see the MOA, those words will still be there because those are the actual words 
um, that are the defining legal standard. I mean, good faith efforts and reasonably specific are terms of art in law that have legal definitions that have been established through case law and, and other mechanisms. So, uh, you know, you will still see those terms in the MOA when it comes up. And <laughs> sure. So, well, maybe I'll have our lawyers answer that question, but reasonably specific. I mean, we have some bargaining history on that point that talks about what kinds of things are elements of being reasonably specific, but a standard for reasonable specificity has to do with what a reasonable person would consider adequately specific as to the information that's needed to evaluate whether they wish to grant their consent. And so that's a, you know, that is an objective standard. That's not a standard based on the person in question. It's not like what do you personally consider to be what you want to know. It has an objective standard to it. What would a reasonable person in your same circumstances expect to know in order to make an informed decision about whether you wish to grant your consent or not? That's that's what that means. And um, so, but to back to your your points uh, as to enforcement, uh, absolutely, enforcement is going to be a huge part, like it is in many things in our contract. That's why we have a team that's specifically devoted to contract enforcement, both in our contracts department and in our legal department. And I certainly expect we will have to ramp up some resources uh, to help enforce the new provisions in this contract because there are a lot of them as we just went through. Um, as far as the um, streaming bonus goes, you know, the question of whether a streaming service would bury their projects for 90 days in an attempt to somehow evade paying the streaming bonus. I mean, we have good data on how many projects have qualified for this in prior years based on this standard. And so if we determine that those, that, that is happening, then we'll absolutely grieve and arbitrate against that. Because we can see from looking at the patterns for 2022, for example, how projects were placed on the platform and how many projects qualified or didn't qualify under that standard. It's also the same standard, by the way, that the Writers Guild is using in their contract. So I would expect that we'll be able to collaborate on enforcement, just like we do in our Tri-Guild audit program, where we audit residuals provisions using outside third-party auditors. So all of those resources yeah, will be available to help make sure that there's no shenanigans going on on the part of the streaming platforms. And you know, we definitely will be watching. Thank you. Um, Duncan, can I just uh, ask you, about approximately how long is the MOA, would it be, in terms of pages? I think the final version will be probably uh, approximately 130 pages. Okay, so there you go. Um, Mike, too, please. Hi, uh, my name is Joel Michaeli. How are you? Well, thank, thanks for all your uh, hard work. Um, I'm a little concerned with, uh, this is something I brought up with David Jolliffe and some of the wor uh, working in wages meetings and stuff. You know, on the streaming residuals for uh, a big movie on a streaming platform, let's say you get you know, a $200 million Ryan Reynolds movie, they were capping the residuals at like $4,000, which like if that was theatrical would be like hundreds of thousands of dollars in residuals. So I don't know, has that gone up on this contract? I don't know if that's gone up. Has syndication rights come back? Fran made a lot of money in syndication and, and ownership on the show and stuff. Like, did syndication come back in this contract? I've heard nothing in regards to it. Like, what's happening with the, uh, the pension increases? You say health and stuff, but, you know, as I've, I've heard before that, you know, people have voted against giving us higher pension increases and giving more to staff. You know, like, what is, what is, 
what is happening with some of this stuff? And also, like, cable was considered, like, a new media kind of thing, and it hasn't gone up in residuals for, like, 40 years, like HBO and stuff. You do an episode of an HBO show, you make a dollar in residuals. So it's like, I haven't heard any of these, like, certain different issues being expressed in here. You know? Sorry, so, spitting out a lot in one, one round. That is a lot. <laughs> okay, so yeah. what, I'm yeah, going to try to take minutes. some of them. I think Ray will probably pick up some of these, and we may ask for some other people. So let me just start with the thing about pension increases, because I think that was directed at the, at the CAPS piece that I mentioned, the increases there. Those increases were not just for the health plan. Those increases were for the pension plan and the retirement fund as well. So those CAPS increases uh, govern the limitations on contributions that are made to all three of those plans in each of those areas. So the same percentage increase that we were talking about, 67% in one, 43% in the other, applies equally to the contributions that are being made to the SAC Reducers Pension Plan and to the After Retirement Fund, depending on which fund the contributions from that project are going to. So is that not what you were asking about? It looks like on your face like that was not what you were questioning. <laughs> I do I do want to know like what more was being added to the pension because like for example my pension I've been working as an actor primarily in film for over 25 years over 100 movies something and my pension is super low it's like $400 when I retire like a month it's a joke whereas um, so I know our pension rate accruing is very low whereas I know like you in particular Duncan has voted for a higher rate for the staff before as opposed to at a lower rate for us. So it's a little uh, disconcerting, so I want to know like, what kind of levels are we getting now on this contract? Sure, so I just want to be clear, like the pension benefit questions are not part of this contract. So I mean, I'm happy to talk about them. I'm not sure if now is the right time. We are adding, as I think I said, about $180 million over the terms of this contract into the benefit plans as a result of those increased contributions. What will be done with that in terms of the of SAG producer's pension or the after retirement uh, pensions is going to be determined by those boards of trustees. But um, really, from my point of view, what I would say is adding additional contributions and increasing those caps can have a direct benefit to you because if you're working in episodic television, for example, you will now get more pension credit for every project you work on if you're earning above those caps. If you're earning below those caps, it won't change anything. But if you earn between those two numbers, you will now get credit for more money for every episode that you've worked on. And that's something that can benefit you both from a health eligibility point of view and also from a pension benefit point of view. And you know, I think probably the other issues we can talk about outside of a contract uh, referendum um, scenario, but absolutely they're but legitimate questions. What's going on about. now with the streaming residuals? Are they still capped at like $4,000? Okay. I'm so sorry. The, well, I think Ray, maybe you can answer. I, you, you said, and, and you, I believe you said that there was some kind of $4,000 cap on the residuals from a, uh, from a feature moved to a streaming platform, which I'm not familiar with. So Ray, maybe you can speak to that. I don't think there is a $4,000 cap. There is an imputation process that has to be gone through to figure out what those residuals are gonna be because it's gonna be a distributor's gross receipts-based formula that applies to a feature that moves to a streaming platform. So you know, if it's a third-party produced feature, it's just a percentage of the license fee that they get from the streaming platform. 
if it's produced by the platform for the platform, then, uh, then they have to make a good faith judgment about what that's worth and what that, what that quote unquote imputed license fee is gonna be, but the residual formula uh, would apply. And, and what's up with cable and syndication? Okay, I just have to say, yeah, you had like Thanks, three Joey. questions, so. <laughs> there, there's you. no, nothing has changed with respect to the formula for he is gonna answer. the reuse of, of cable programs on a cable network, uh, nor has the syndication formula changed. Okay, um, mic number one. Hey, how's it going? My name is Joseph Jones, uh, actor. Um, my question, I guess, uh, in 2022, Capitol Records signed a AI rapper, and they were met with so much backlash from other artists, from consumers, from everyone who listened to music, that 10 days later, they had to drop this artist. Now, I know, I know, you've mentioned before about disincentivizing the studios and receiving notifications whenever we were replaced with synthetic AI. Like what notifications will we then receive as artists or members of SAG-AFTRA to rally behind and, and you know boycott whenever they try to replace a performer or get rid of us? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really excellent point. Uh, I don't think there's anything in this contract that would limit us in sharing that information with our members and with the world. I will note, you know, we have, um, in fact, I, I, during this negotiation, I testified with the Federal Trade Commission about our support for uh, labeling of AI content um, so that consumers can know um, when there is AI or fake content being created. And we continue to support that as well as our other legislative efforts in this area. So I think it's a great point and absolutely we could, um, we could use our members and the general public to put pressure on the companies about AI fakes. Okay, thank you. And people get it, and they want to support actors. They want to keep us working. So thank you for the, the work and the effort that you guys have done on the front lines of this to get us a good deal. Thank you. Thank you. Microphone number two, please. Hello, my name is Elle Latham. I'm extrapolating on that a little bit with the AI conversation and wanted to ask, will you fight to keep human actors employed in the next contract negotiation? What happens when the AI outperforms human actors? And have you thought of all the scenarios that could and likely will occur as a result of the AI provisions in this very contract? How likely will it be that the digital replica condition of employment will further normalize digital replication and that more human actors will miss out on jobs because of lack of consent to these, this new technology? How can you ensure that human actors and background actors will be able to get work in this brave new world generated by AI? Thank you. I think there's a lot there, and I really appreciate the passion that's obviously in what you're saying. And I think a lot of people up here agree with you. I mean, our goal is to protect uh, human actors. And, you know, we have different ways of doing that for different types of acting. I mean, uh, obviously, we talked about background where we were able, because our contract structure is different for background actors, we were able to protect those covered jobs as human jobs. Obviously, the employment-based digital replica, which is what we expect to be the most frequently used of any of the provisions in this AI piece of the contract, 
is based on the concept that there is primarily a human actor working there. That's how the digital replica is created. And the idea is that the digital replica is used in combination with the human actor. The kinds of things the companies have talked about doing is facilitating certain reshoots where there's scheduling problems, things of that nature. I know that it is in everyone's mind the idea that actors would just be gone and that only digital replicas or synthetic fakes would be used in place of actors. But um, I happen to believe that your, your sort of starting premise, what happens when AI outperforms human actors, I happen to believe that that's not going to happen. And the reason why I believe that's not going to happen is not because robots can't be performed to do certain programs to perform certain actions better than us, but because I believe that acting, just like writing, for example, is a fundamentally human creative activity and that there is not an AI that can do what Meryl Streep can do. And I don't know your acting personally, but I'm sure there is not an AI that can do what you can do. And so while it is true that AIs can be created to do certain types of things, um, it, is, it is all of our objective to preserve human artistry, human creativity, and that is precisely what we're gonna do. And one other thing I'll just say, I see you wanna continue and that's fine, but one thing I wanna say is, one of the things that we've done to help protect that is we have strongly advocated and supported our copyright office's decision that AI creations are not eligible for copyright registration. That's one of the things that's gonna help us protect against having wholesale replacement of humans with AI creation because one thing these companies know is they're earnings and existence is entirely based on copyright. Their earnings and existence is based on their ability to make money off of these projects, and they are gonna have a real problem doing that if they try to shift into AI. So we can't look at it as only this contract, it is a broader picture, and I assure you we're fighting on all of those fronts. I am seeing it as a broader picture, that's why I brought up the broad questions that I brought up, but I also wanted to mention that I wouldn't say that I don't believe that you would protect us as human actors. I believe that the companies would not have a, an incentive to do so. And that is the problem. It is a problem, but that's why, that's why these provisions are so important. If we don't have these provisions, we have a blank page. And I, let me tell you, as a lawyer whose entire, most of my entire career, other than when I was a criminal prosecutor for a couple of years, since then, my entire career has been devoted to protecting actors, performers, and our other members. And let me tell you, I would much rather have a page, 16 pages of detailed protections to use to fight for you than a blank page and a statement that we hate AI. Because one of those things I could do something with and the other one, I, 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 the other one I can't. It's not really about hating AI, it's about uh, controlling I, AI. I was being a little dramatic there, I admit, sorry. Yeah, but like, <laughs> I, I apologize. the issue is the companies will exert their control over us in many ways, and they will use AI to do that. And that's what I'm concerned That's what about. we're all trying to fight against. And I respect that people may have a different view than I do about how to do that, but I just hope we all know that's what we're, everyone in this room, I am 100% convinced, we are all fighting for the same result, which is protecting actors. And you know, if we have any disagreements about how to do it, that's fine, but just know we're all on the same team in, in that fight. Also, on a personal note, I will not vote until I read the entire contract. Thank you very much for your time. We'll get it to you as soon as we can, I promise. Thank you. All right, the gentleman, Mike One, please. Hi, everybody. I'm Eric Nicolason, and uh, so nice to see everybody in the flesh here tonight. Um, uh, so my, my uh, questions are also related to AI, 
Um, but uh, more about the oversight and the security measures in place. Duncan just uh, went on about all the provisions and protections, and I just want to pin down on that because um, this is going to become a condition of an employment of employment. So I just want to make sure that we are okay uh, adhering to these conditions and we're protected. So uh, questions. It's a multi-layered question, all on this subject. In this age of deep fakes, hacking, and identity theft. How will SAG-AFTRA ensure that members' unique biometric data is safely collected, stored, transmitted, compensated, and properly disposed of? These are things like our retinal imagery, our voice samples, fingerprints, high-resolution body mapping. And note that um, our bargaining partners, Disney, Sony Pictures, and Sony Interactive, are already on the California government's official list of data breaches. Um, which SAG-AFTRA department specifically or outside services will be overseeing these privacy protections of our members? And what is the contracted term of this oversight? Uh, after all, in a short time, we're going to have hundreds of thousands of LLCs active and defunct possessing our biometric data. And I just want to make sure we have these protections that Duncan said is tomes and tomes and pages and pages, and he's devoted his life to it. I just want to make sure they are in this contract. I want to hear all about them. Um, if the, the unfinished project is sold to a non-contracted third party, can our private biometric data also be sold to a non-contracted third party? Uh, will SAG-AFTRA have oversight measures in place to track that data in these cases? Can this data be stored overseas in foreign countries? If so, what stop gaps and legal recourses does our union have in these other global jurisdictions? I want to hear about the protections put in place. And lastly, considering there's a market for everything, how can our non-identifiable scan data, synthesized or hybrid, uh, can it be sold to outside industries? What sort of oversight, constraints, or disclosures are in place to make sure that this non-identifiable data is actually non-identifiable or that we have knowledge and consent of the sale of our private, unique, biometric data. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Okay, so let's start with the question of what the companies have the right to do with, a, with the data that they create through a scan for the creation of a digital replica. And the answer is the only thing they have the right to do with that is to use that digital replica in the project for which you were engaged. The contract specifically prohibits them from doing anything else with that digital replica without your informed consent to such a use. So if the, if the um, companies want to sell it to a third party, if the companies want to use it for something else, none of that can be done without coming to you first, explaining to you precisely with reasonable specificity what it is that they intend to do and getting your consent, which you can decline or you can condition on payment, or you can grant as you see fit. So that's what their rights are to do with it. In terms of how will we ensure that the data is safely collected, et cetera, these companies are obligated to make sure that no use other than the use that is authorized as part of the digital replica creation and use is permitted. So these companies are required to use industry standard measures to protect that information to ensure that that doesn't happen. And if it does happen, then we will have remedies for that through grievance and arbitration, just like any other violation of this contract. In terms of the question of what department we overseeing, 
the compliance with this. Our contracts department and our legal department will be overseeing compliance with these provisions, just like every other provision that we have in the contract. Um, the question is regarding data breaches. It is a reality of life that there are data breaches. So if you're asking, can I guarantee that no studio is ever gonna have a data breach? The answer is no, I cannot guarantee that. No one could guarantee that. And if someone said they could guarantee that, you should distrust that answer. But it is a fact that these companies will have legal uh, liability in the event that they don't use uh, security measures to ensure that um, no unauthorized use of a digital replica is made. Can the data be stored overseas uh, in other countries? Yes, the data could be stored overseas in other countries, provided that the same security measures are in place. And by the way, for any of you who use any cloud service, the data can be stored overseas as well. So security measures are the key factor, more so than the question of the geographic location of the server. And finally, how is uh, non-identifiable data protected? Whether the data is identifiable or not identifiable, if it was created for the purpose of creating a digital replica of you, it can't be used except with your informed consent. And so the companies cannot sell it, they cannot de-identify it and sell it, that data is subject to the terms of this contract and will enforce those terms. Okay, All right. thank you very much. Uh, Mike, too, please. Hi, everyone. My name is Sydney Olson, and I'm a stunt performer. And I speak for all stunt performers when we feel like we've been left out of the conversation, because I'm not seeing any literature on what stunt performers are protected against with AI. So if you could please enlighten me on that. Sure, no, I really appreciate the question. And number one, stunt performers have the same exact protections applying to them as any other performer under this contract that rules for digital replication. And I think if I were a stunt performer, a part that I would consider particularly important would be the generative AI rules as it relates to the creation of synthetic performers. Because obviously for some, for some stunt performers, they may be recognizable in roles, but many stunt performers may not be individually recognizable in roles. And so for synthetic performances, my response to you is really very similar to what I had to say about loopers, which is if there is a creation of a synthetic uh, perform fake or synthetic performer for purposes of doing a stunt, the companies have to notify us of that so we'll have notice of it. And on top of that, we have the ability to negotiate for compensation or consideration for that. And our intention would be to use that negotiation power to make that something that is not economically advantageous for the companies so that they will not have an incentive to replace live stunt performers with, with a synthetic performer instead. And so that is what we'll do with the information. And perhaps I should add to my list what, uh, what your fellow member earlier said about also using that notification to help bring it to the attention of the membership and perhaps the broader community at large so that they can express their disapproval of projects that are replacing people uh, with synthetic fakes if that comes to pass. Everything that we've been told um, by the companies and our experience of what the companies are doing to date suggests that that is less likely to occur during the term of this contract. What's more likely to occur during the term of this contract is the use of digital replicas as it relates to principal performers who are unavailable for various reasons. But that doesn't mean we didn't pay attention to it. We did pay attention to it. And in fact, um, we will continue to stay focused on how to make sure stunt performers, just like all of our other categories of performers, 
are not um, left out in the cold as a result of the use of AI. And I really appreciate you asking the questions. Thank you. I just have one more concern. Is it possible for them to then make a replica of the actor and just have that do the stunts? So, I mean, that is a legitimate concern. And if there is a stunt that can be convincingly done by a digital replica of a principal performer, then that's a problem. I mean, and it's the same problem, frankly, that we have uh, with certain other areas like voice matching, for example. Um, it doesn't mean that that's going to happen routinely. It doesn't mean that that's gonna be a go-to. And I think there will be a number of circumstances where it's non-feasible from a technical point of view or it's more expensive from a technical point of view. But it is a, it is a concern and it's something we're gonna have to monitor very closely. And if we detect a pattern of that happening, then we're going to have to negotiate in the next round of bargaining for additional protections that are specific to that uh, particular concern. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, we'll go to uh, mic number one, please. Hi, my name is Veronica Bruce. I wanted to thank you so much for opening up this AI dialogue. And uh, my question goes to actually what you keep on saying about synthetic performers um, in the gen AI section talking about being able to bargain for them to de-incentivize. Could you please go more specifically into what that means? Is that a penalty fee? It, what, how, what exactly are you okay to bargain? Well, first of all, let me just say that determination will be made by the, by the standing committee for this contract, which is the negotiating committee that largely that you see up here, some members aren't here. So that's you know how we would strategize the demand for that is something that would depend upon the circumstances. But it, in general terms, it would be to make sure that the cost of doing that, you know, our estimate of what it would have cost for them to engage an actual performer to do that work, is the floor for that bargaining. Um, I wouldn't call it a penalty fee uh, for various legal reasons, but what I would call it is us um, negotiating, which we have every right to do under the provisions of this contract, for an uh, economic terms that we think are appropriate for the use of a synthetic performer. And from my point of view, the economic terms that would be appropriate for that use are terms that are at least equal to or preferably greater than what the cost of that would have been to use a human performer to do the same work. My concern around this is that um, AI is already populating scenes. I mean, crowds are being populated with synthetic performers. So <coughs> how are you going to distinguish, oh, that's, that's gen AI, oh, that was a model, oh, that was from a licensing from a software program. And then how exactly are you, <coughs> again, I feel like it's so obscure, it's like, how are you gonna, if you're gonna take that money, if you're gonna bargain some level, how then are you going to distribute that? Who's going to decide? How much of a side letter is this? So as far as crowd scenes goes, I'm glad you brought that up because you know when we talk about crowd scenes, I wanna re just remind everybody that the, the proposed contract includes a guarantee of employment of actual human background actors up to the coverage maximums in our contract. So if there are crowd scenes where they're going to use any kind of AI uh, replication for numbers above that, that's outside the jurisdiction of our contract, number one. Number two, all of the SAG-AFTRA covered background will be engaged. And if they use digital replicas of those or other SAG-AFTRA background in order to fill out those crowd scenes, they will have to be paid. So you know, a very plausible possible way that that could be done 
is by actually engaging more covered background actors. The covered background actors in person, plus covered digital replicas for whom they are getting paid and getting benefit plan contributions, even though they don't have to report to work physically that day. <coughs> Having said that, it is a guarantee in the contract that up to those coverage numbers, background actors have to be engaged. So for purposes of crowd scenes, we're not gonna see a diminution of, um, of the number of days of work for background actors. As a matter of fact, we're gonna see a vast increase in that because as I'm sure you know, the current number for uh, theatrical motion pictures, for example, is 57 covered positions in the West Coast zone. And now that number is gonna go up to, is it 80 or 85? I can't remember. 85. So that means on any project where you're gonna be hiring a large number of background actors, you now have a huge number of additional covered positions and all of those have to be filled with humans, not with AI tools. So I just wanted to be clear for crowd scenes, I don't think that's an area. I mean, there are plenty of areas for concern in AI. I acknowledge that. I don't think crowd scenes is one of them for those reasons. Um, and now that I went into that whole rant about crowd scenes, Veronica, I'm so sorry, I forgot the second half of but what you said. That is exactly though, those are synthetic performers and you're talking about synthetic performers that you're going to bargain for. I'm not concerned with mm. the 80 coverage. Mm -hmm. I'm still asking, how is that being, what does that mean being bargained? Because it's like these synthetic performers are not, do not reflect to be a um, member of the union. They were right. not created by the union. How are you bargaining for something that you don't represent as a bargaining Because we're not, we're not really bargaining, we're not bargaining to get the synthetic performer paid. We're bargaining to make sure that there's not an incentive to use them in the first place. That's what we're really bargaining for. That's why this provision is so important and frankly, why I'm so pleased that we got it because the companies could have said, this is a non-mandatory subject to bargaining. We don't have to negotiate over this. There's no actual employment going on here. Instead, we were able to use the leverage generated by our strike and by all of you being out on picket lines to actually get them to give us something in generative AI that we did not have a legal right to, to force through, right? And so having that ability to negotiate and be notified of those uses is entirely designed to help us constrain how much use of synthetic fakes can happen in this contract. And I just urge you to really think, not you personally, but all of us, to think a lot about this issue because if we didn't have that provision, then I ask you, what constrains them? If we didn't have that provision, what constrains them? Nothing constrains them. This is a really important tool for us to use to help make sure that human actors remain in this picture and that we don't have a takeover by synthetic fakes. I, I guess I'm not really sold because I just don't hear how that's really happening. If I, I just, I don't, I don't hear that. I don't hear enforcing that. Um, I, I, I don't know, but we'll have to wait and see. I, my next question is also about AI. And it's about the uh, deceased performers and the, I've heard you say two seconds. different, um, I've heard you say two different things. It, on Monday, it sounded like it was an opt out situation. Like, hey, if you don't want the union to uh, be deciding for things for you um, when you're deceased, then you just let us know. And then I heard you on the Instagram live saying that, well, of course, you know, the, the, the producer said we need, they needed this because they didn't know where to go as if they don't know to go to the estate. Um, and, and then you said it was kind of an opt-in situation. So which one is it? And is it really necessary to keep that kind of 
union consent aspect on there because it's already kind of law. So I was just curious about how exactly that's going to work. Thank sure, you. Sure. So I don't, I don't think that I said two different things. If it came across that way, I apologize, but it's neither an opt-in nor an opt-out. It is built into the contract. The way you can opt out of it is by having a will, having heirs, having beneficiaries, and making sure that they keep the union informed in the event of your untimely demise as to who they are and where they are so that there will never be a need for union consent to be an issue. The other thing that I mentioned was we do plan on establishing a system so that performers can inform us of their desires with respect to any kind of consent for use after their death, just in case they end up dying without a will or they end up dying without any heirs or whatever, so that we have that guidance. The companies really negotiated for this to be included and as part of the overall package, what we achieved in AI, we had to make some uh, compromises and adjustments. And so this is one of them. But from my point of view, it still leaves all the control in the hands of the performer. Uh, if you want your heirs and beneficiaries to decide this for you, then you can make that happen. If you want to specify it before your death, you can make that happen. If you don't even want to think about it because it's a scary thought and you just want to leave it to whatever happens, you can do that. It's really up to you. You have all that control. And, um, and we will put out uh, guidance or information to members about how they can give us their instructions if they choose to do that. Okay, great, thank you. Um, Karen, at mic two. Uh, her mic's not on, please. Is there here? she goes, okay. yeah. Hi, I'm Karen West. I've been, uh, oh, it's loud. <laughs> uh, I've been a member of SAG uh, since 1979. Uh, I love you guys. I admire you. I know you've gotten a hell of a good things for us. I feel, as I told Francis earlier, I'm at that holiday party where everything's going well, but then the drunk cousin shows up <laughs> and it's the ugly issue we're focusing on, not the fun at the party. I still have that champagne in the fridge, but I can't celebrate yet because I'm really, really concerned. Our union protects us that when we say no, we don't get retaliated against. Unions fail when they say, we don't need you, we can replace you. They did that a little bit with the SAG commercial strike. We'll just get non-union. So I'm worried about a replica of myself. I'm worried that if, because this is for me an existential moment for all of AI. You know it, I know it and the intrusion of AI in our labor market. I don't understand if the Writers Guild refused to let AI write any scripts. Why, you know, and I'm confounded where we're letting our bodies, literally, and our body of work to be free to replicate in perpetuity. It's the same fight and Writers Guild won it. in you. I know you can do better. You're the best negotiating team ever. I know you can do better. So what is the mechanism if a union, you know, if they're, if, if, what's the mechanism if 
They want my consent. Whoops. Whoop. Can you hear me? Yes, that was your time. Oh. <laughs> Finish. No, no, no. Go on. Go on, Karen. Continue. Thank you. What is what is the mechanism if I don't give consent, so they don't hire me? Retaliation. Who is going to sue them for discrimination? I don't have the money. I'm a working class actor. Who is going to sue them for that discrimination? I've heard that, and on solidarity, well, we'll sue them if they have that discriminatory practice. Um, and the other thing is, if we give in to all of this, and they can, you know, Ted Sarando said, oh, we, we're okay till October because we have stockpiled all these scripts. We're fine. F from here on in, they can stockpile all our digital replicas. And if we're trying to fight for more in 2025, and they go, you know what? We got stockpiled you. We don't need you. What? What happens then? So those are my concerns. I love you. This is difficult. It's painful for me to even have to say this. Um, so if what is the mechanism to protect uh, Scarlett Johansson can sue for them using, but I can't sue. Is this legal department going to sue for me? That's my question. So. I really appreciate the question, and I'm glad we were able to get them in. So first of all, when you say retaliation, I mean, I understand why it feels like retaliation. But let me just be real honest with you. It's not retaliation legally, okay? Any more than if the company says to you, are you willing to relocate to Vancouver for six months, and you say no, and they say, well, then we're not going to hire you. That's not retaliation either. If they, if they say to you, if they say to you, are you willing to do this nude scene or this sex scene, and you say no, then... Decorum, decorum, me, I'm please, sorry, I didn't please, interrupt any hello? of you, and it'd be great if I could just finish my answer. That'd be awesome. Thanks. And if you decline to do a nude scene or a sex scene that's part of a project's requirements, then they can decline to hire you because of that. That's not legally retaliation. I know it may feel like retaliation, but it's not. If they want or need a digital replica as part of the hiring for a project, then you have every right to say no to it. They also have a right not to hire you and to hire someone else who's willing to do a digital replica. That's the reality. Now, having said that, if you've already been hired, if you've already been hired and they didn't ask you that, or they asked you and they said, we want a digital replica just for insurance purposes, and now they come back to you and say, actually, we've decided we want to do reshoots, and we want to do this, and we want to do that with your digital replica, and you say no, and they say, okay, well, we're recasting you, and we're not going to pay you, 100% our legal department will come, and we will file a grievance for you. We will arbitrate that. We'll file a lawsuit if we have to, and we will get you paid for that. Yeah, you, you, can, <laughs> you can write those words down, because that is absolutely the case, because that that they cannot do. But as part of your initial hiring, if you say, I won't do a digital replica, it is the same as if you say you won't do something else that is an essential part of that role, and they can decide to move on and cast someone else. That's the reality. There will always be a hungry actor who will say yes, and they'll stockpile it. And as far as the stockpiling question goes, I, I, that was your second point. I do want to just note, they, they can't just stockpile digital replicas, okay? They have to have 
specific detailed informed consent for each use of those digital replicas. So unless they have imagined every possible use and gotten you to agree to every possible use in advance, which they actually can't do for projects you haven't been engaged for yet under the terms of this agreement, they can't make use of those digital replicas. If they do, then absolutely we'll sue them because it'll be a breach of consent and, and they will be on the hook for, for damages, significant damages as a result of that in my view. So we do have a recourse in that scenario. Thank you so much for your question. Uh, Mike One. Oh, I'm sorry, I was also just reminded you had also mentioned the writer has to be a human part. So let's talk about that for a minute in terms of the Writers Guild provision. The DGA agreement and the Writers Guild agreement are different than our contracts. In the Writers Guild agreement, there are mandatory requirements to hire writers. There are requirements to hire certain personnel in the DGA agreement. There are not requirements under our contract to hire actors. There is nothing in this contract that says that any production has to hire an actor, a background actor, a stunt performer, or any kind of performer at all. So I ask you, what would happen if we just adopted the same strategy that the Writers Guild or the Directors Guild chose, which is to define an actor as being only a human being? The answer is, yeah, oh, sure, that sounds really great. That sounds great, but what would actually happen? What would actually happen is there would continue to be no protection for digital replicas, and they would say, we're not hiring an actor. We're hiring a synthetic fake. We don't need an actor. What you need is actual protection against what these companies might do, not something that just sounds great but doesn't actually protect you. And I'm telling you right now, getting some, it would have been, it would have been easy to just get them to say, something, oh, actors are humans, sure, we'll agree to that. And you would have had zero protection and something you could say, oh, I feel good because they acknowledge actors are humans. But that's not the reality. The reality is what you need is protection against them doing stuff without your consent, protection against them using generative AI to create fake actors and using them without having to notify anyone or getting, having to pay for it. That's why we fought for those provisions. And our contracts are different, our members are different, and the strategy had to be different. The Writers Guild AI provision is, I don't know, a page or two. Ours is gonna be 15 or 16 pages, why? Because that's what it took to put in a sufficient minimum level of protection for actors. And again, I totally respect your questions and I totally respect everyone in this room who may disagree with me on this, but just know we're all coming from the same place, which is a devotion to protecting actors. And in my view, this is the way to do that, not by getting a platitude that says actors are humans that has no legal enforceability or any ability to protect you. Okay, so I just wanna let you know, this is 10 o'clock now, which is when we were going to close the meeting. We're gonna extend the meeting till just before 11 when we have to leave. So I just want you to all, when you heard that little my phone go off, it's because I put two minutes down. So if you're speaking, you're making a statement, you're asking a question, that's your two minute thing. So I'm not doing it on purpose, it's just here. Um, so please, we have about 30 more people with questions, I believe, I'm looking at it re loosely. So let's continue. And if you can be um, mindful, of your time, your two minutes. Okay. And I, I just want to yeah. thank everybody for being here. I'm very impressed with all of you for coming out and your questions. And it's a smart group of people and obviously Duncan's smart. So it's a very interesting dialogue and I'm grateful for it.
Okay. Um, Mike one. <clears throat> Well, since I'm the main one who's been talking, I just promise you I'll try to be briefer. How's that? Is that okay? Because I, I'm not trying to use up your time. I just want to make sure I give complete responses, but I'll, I'll okay. be as fast as I can. Thank you. Mike one, please. Hi, I'm Scott Lambright. I'm a can voice actor. Please get closer to your mic, please. Hi, Hi Scott Lambright. I'm a voice actor and a looper, and I want to make sure with the AI language that it's not just covering things like a spoken language. A lot of times we work on things, we're making fictional language for aliens, we're screaming as zombies and creatures. I wanna make sure the language includes everything so they can't get around our proposal and say, okay, well, it's all just blah, 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 blah. And I wanna make sure the language is completely airtight for us to not be replaced and say, well, this took place on X planet, so don't worry about it. All those Star Wars shows, that's, we're done with that. So I want to make sure the language is there to protect all of us. Same thing with well, on-camera performers, a noticeable feature or face. When someone's screaming, you can't really argue that that's a noticeable feature because a lot of times they're like, well, I don't know who scream that is. So I want to make sure that that provision's in there to protect us, to make sure that anything a voice makes or a human makes, breath, anything like that is protected and covered. Thank you. Sure, no, thanks for the Thank question. You. So if it's a performance, as far as digital replication goes, it's protected. So it doesn't matter whether it's a, you know, what language it is specifically or anything like that. But I do want to know just the recognizable feature language that you're referencing, that's part of the generative AI piece specifically. And that is a individual consent right for performers who have a recognizable feature incorporated into a synthetic fake. So that does not, that, that does not apply to voice acting. So I just wanna be clear, the protection for voice acting that's contained in generative AI is the notice and the bargaining requirement. So if they decide to create a synthetic voice and use that, they must notify us. And when they notify us, we will then negotiate for compensation or for payment structure for that that makes it non-economically advantageous for them to do it. That's what our strategy is for dealing with uh, voice acting as it relates to synthetic fakes. But the, the recognizable feature piece doesn't, that doesn't connect to voice acting. Thank you. And thanks to the ASL interpreters, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, microphone two. Um, hi, my name's Joey Alley. I'm an actor and also a writer-director. I just wanna start by saying thank you so much. I know you guys have been fighting so hard for all of us. And I know that these are hard won concessions, it's a hard one contract. There are so many wonderful things in this contract. That being said, moving on, I do have concerns about AI. I share Karen's existential concern. This is something that has caused me to feel like I wanna go back to theater, honestly, thinking about this happening. Um, <laughs> and also not, I mean, I love theater, but you know what I mean. Um, I just wanted to take part of my time to read this. So my biggest concern with this is actually the in, and also coming to this place as a director, is the internal inside of the scene editing that can take place with your double. It says that you are protected from your performance being meaningfully adjusted outside of, quote, editing, arranging, rearranging, revising, or manipulating a photography and or a soundtrack for purposes of cosmetics, wardrobe, noise reduction, timing or speed, continuity, pitch or tone, clarity, addition of visual sound effects or filters, standards and practices, ratings, and adjustment in dialogue or narration or other similar purposes. 
Now, aside from the artistry concerns I have around this and being able to create a performance and create it with the director, or when I'm a director, being able to create it with the performer and have the space and time to do that, or I'm sorry, aside from the artistry possibly being broken up or our, uh, seeing our um, performances manipulated, my actual concern, more specifically my question comes from this. You specifically said, Duncan, and I agree, that they will always try to get it as cheap and fast as possible, right? They're just gonna try and get it for as cheap as possible. When we talk about incentivizing them to hire live performances versus our synthetic doubles, we are not, and we try to parody the, uh, make those things the same cost. They're never gonna be the same cost because you have to have an entire set for a live actor to be there. So automatically, to me, the synthetic is preferable. Secondly, I'm concerned about the days. When you have an actor on set, what is to say that a producer cannot now say to the director, hey, we're gonna get one take of this because once we've image captured this performance in this space, we can change anything we want to forever in post. What is to stop them from shooting effectively an entire feature film in one day if they can get us into every single location on that day? Thank you. So, uh, great questions. I first of all appreciate that, and I appreciate you reading the, the details. So anybody who's gone to the summary and really looked at the detail, I have to give you props for that, so thank you for doing that. Um, as far as your point about synthetics and the, you know, the impact of not having to pay for location sets, crews, et cetera, I mean, you're right. There's only so much we can do to protect against that. I do think that the negotiation provisions will be quite effective as it relates to the use of uh, synthetics in combination with live action performances, because of course that wouldn't be the case then. For example, if they're using synthetic performers to fill out a crowd scene, if they're using synthetic performers to uh, do certain kinds of voiceover work, et cetera, where they wouldn't have been tied to crews uh, or to sets or to locations, et cetera. So I do think we're gonna have to keep monitoring that and that's one of the benefits of having a notice requirement is every time they do it, we're gonna get a notice about it we're gonna be able to investigate it, determine what kinds of stuff they're doing and how we can best address it if it requires addressing. And of course, uh, I, I'm keeping to come back to, to your fellow member over there whose name I've somehow forgotten, I apologize, who was saying, you know, pointing that out to the community may also be an effective tool. Um, what stops them from doing a scene in a day that would have taken a lot longer by using digital replication? So number one, if they're using digital replication um, under the employment-based digital replica terms, they have to pay for that in the way that it would have traditionally been done, the amount of time that would have been required to shoot that scene. So they can't say, you know, oh, well, the digital replica could do this scene in one day, but a human performer would have taken a week to do this scene. They have to pay based on the week, not, based, not pay based on the digital replica's time to do it. So perhaps I'm, from your expression on your face, I'm interpreting that maybe I misunderstood your point or misunderstood your question. But the fact of the matter is, you know, using digital replicas will in some cases create efficiencies for them. And, but let's not forget, they also have to pay for the cost of creating the digital replica, of, of using the digital replica, and that isn't free either. So when you balance all of those factors out, I think during the term of this contract, we have good reason to believe that we can negotiate terms for synthetics that will actually make it um, not economically beneficial to use them in at least in a large number of cases. And the digital replica provisions will give our members consent and control over the use of their own image in ways they do not have, they do not have right now. 
to have to follow up on that. Um, I just, I guess my real question though is, who is going to be overseeing how long a scene would have taken? Because there's actually no way to pre-see that. I certainly know that as a director, you work with an actor and you find a performance over the course of many takes sometimes and over the course of finding it together. Why am I now not going to be cut off after one take from my producer saying, or two takes, let's say, so I can blend the two, and when I say, and there it was, and is from the first take, there is from the second take, it was from the, you know, you can... Yeah, no, I, I understand what you're saying. So, number one, the producer has to initially make that determination. Number two, we have a wealth of data about how long things have taken when they have been done, obviously not on that same project, but historically we have exhibit G's and other records that go back for many years that tell us how long different types of work takes. And so my expectation is if we get a performer who comes forward and says, hey, you know, I saw this project and my digital replica did a lot more work than I got paid for. You know, it looked like two or three weeks worth of work and they paid me for a day or they paid me for one week or whatever, then we can go back and audit that production and we can file a claim to secure additional payment for them. And I fully expect that we will do that because it is really important that we make sure that the use of digital replicas, the cost factors attached to that, approximate the cost factors attached to the engagement of that performer, both, both for that one performer's benefit, but also for the collective benefit that comes from that. Okay, I'm sorry, it's time. Um, microphone number one. And I just want to say, you know, Duncan has a lot to say to answer certain questions, and uh, we appreciate it. Is that too long? Is that what that meant? No. It was, no, it was fine. Well, <laughs> just checking. He did say that a while okay. ago, but. <laughs> I'm Fran, trying to keep it short, but. Uh, Fran really just wanted. Give me the signal. We give just me the, wanted. The, hook, the big hook. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's enough saying. Microphone number one. <laughs> Hi there, uh, James, stunt performer, mocap uh, guy. I used to run a mocap stage, so I know all about this because I worked with the spearhead of people that did this, that made digital doubles and actually created the tech that does what we're all worried about. Uh, first and foremost, thank you, negotiating committee, board members, staff, captains, WGA, IATSE, AFM, actors, equ actors, equity, healthcare workers, non-union performers, strike babies, strike puppies, and goats, and all those that joined us over the 118 Google <laughs> days. Uh, you're all showing phenomenal resilience, strength, and tenacity. Hydrate and rest when you can. Uh, also, we lost friends and family during this, and I um, uh, just want to give them a moment of silence. I do. Uh, as a union, we should say no to scanning as an official stance. The union SAG should have and should be saying as a, an official stance, no to scanning for every performer. I know that we can't officially make people take that stance on work, but we as a union should say that because as assets happen, uh, the more they get, the more we are replaced. That is a guarantee that is not uh, a hypothetical. Uh, as, so currently studios do funny accounting, they break contractual obligations and do everything they can do to dance around requirements and maximize their money while exploiting and abusing us. Claims are constant and consistent, and the process is backed up uh, with months between communications. With digital assets, it's impossible to track transgressions. Impossible. I'm telling you this as someone who works in the field. I could, I could send you guys for a loop, and you would never find what I did, and I could use all of you to make the projects that I make. Uh, what I'm saying is that you can change the color of the, the hair, skin, eyes. You can add sunglasses, hats, helmets, and other wardrobe or physical tweaks to hide any recognizable physicalities to sidestep financial obligations. Uh, it is not costly to use this tech unless you use a third party, which is what they're doing now. 
which is like going to a dealership for repairs. You're gonna pay a lot, but they're doing in-house now. Uh, I have a whole lot, of, obviously I'm out of time, so I'm just gonna skip to my questions. Uh, can we start working with, I believe that the studio people, we need studio people at this type of thing. We need to have them involved in the conversation because they need to understand what it is. And we need to work with them to come to a conclusion because it is a complicated solution that we have to work towards. And we can't tie their hands against third parties that they're competing with. So we need to find a way together that we can move this forward in a way that's productive. Uh, so are we taking any steps to connect them to our community to look at doing this in a to, in a team effort? And then also last two questions that, that button onto that. Uh, are there any buttons left over from the WNB Netflix studios? Because I, I missed those buttons. And uh, do we have a slush fund to chip in for a pizza party for our captains? Thank you. Hold on for a second. Uh, Ray, do you want to answer some of those questions? Uh, Duncan. I think so, uh, yeah, first of all, look, I understand the desire to say no to scanning. I understand it. I totally understand it. We could, there was no scenario where we were going to be able to prohibit scanning or digital replication in this contract. So just, I mean, it, you can want that and you can know that that would be great and also recognize that it is not achievable or doable. Um, and that's why you have to put the best possible protections in place that you can, as opposed to um, you know, taking a stand that does not actually result in real protection for our members. And that's what ultimately this committee had to address. Are we or can we start working with the studios? Absolutely, it was in the presentation. We already have an agreement to meet with those companies twice a year to discuss what's going on with AI and to work together with them. Although, you know, when you said we can't tie their hands with respect to third parties, that's exactly what they said to us throughout this negotiation. That's one of the things they kept saying to us about why they couldn't do certain things that we ultimately convinced them to do anyway through the application of pressure from our strike and through our negotiation. And so, you know, the entirety of the generative AI part of this agreement, they didn't want to do because they said you're tying our hands in comparison to third parties. So I just, you know, the problem is we can't say, number one, let's ban it, and number two, let's work with them and not tie their hands in comparison to third parties because those are two completely contradictory results that can't coexist with each other. So I think what we've done uh, is actually push them as far as they could be pushed on generative AI and also on digital replication in this negotiation with great result in terms of improved protections. Is it perfect? No, I'm not making the argument that it is, if you haven't heard that already, clearly saying that. But is this the best protection that could be negotiated in this contract at this time with the leverage that we have at our disposal? I believe the answer to that is yes. As far as the slush fund or slush fund for a captain's event, yes, I think we've got a captain's event already planned for uh, next week, I believe, or something's happening on that soon. So um, yes, we are definitely eager to take care of our captains and make sure they know how much they're appreciated. And so we're working on something for them right now. So thank you. Thank you for suggesting and appreciate it. <laughs> Okay, um, microphone number two. 
Hello, uh, my name is Heather Ashley Boyer and I'm an actor. Um, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it and I appreciate you answering our questions. Um, so a little bit about myself. Um, I've been out on the picket line since day one talking about AI specifically. That was my number one concern. Thank you, yes. Um, and I first heard about AI and the degree at which it was accelerating three and a half years ago. No one was talking about it. Everyone thought it was ridiculous, but here we are. So that being said, what we're doing here sets precedent for three years from now when we renegotiate. Not even three years, two and a half years. So my concern, honestly, every day I have a new concern about what's in the contract right now. So my concern today is that <laughs> there, I feel that there are too many loopholes that the, studios, that the studios will be exploiting. For example, to create a synthetic actor, they will be able to type, create a character who looks like Walter White from Breaking Bad into a generative AI program, and legally, the studios will owe Brian Cranston nothing. Zero money. Thank you. Um, because even though it's his face for all practical purposes, the studios did not input his name into the AI generator. So this is just one of the many loopholes that I'm concerned about. Um, what are you, what is your response to that? Like what is your solution? What is your plan? Because I honestly feel like there is no real plan, especially around synthetic performers or synthetic actors, whatever we're calling them, we're calling them. Thank you. Yes. Thanks. No, I appreciate that question very much. Um, so first of all, if Brian Cranston, either in the form of Walter White or in any other form, is turned into a digital avatar, right? That falls under the digital replica provision, not under the synthetic performer provision. The synthetic performer provision only applies to a creation that is not, does not resemble any actual human being. So if it resembles Brian Cranston, which was the premise of your question, then the consent provisions and the payment provisions of the digital replica part of this contract all apply. They're all enforceable through grievance and arbitration. They would have to get his informed consent to create it. They would have to get his consent to the specific uh, detailed use, right? And they would have to compensate him accordingly. So, so really, that is covered by this contract. That scenario that you just hypothesized is completely covered by this contract. That's Now, it's not to diminish your concerns about generative AI and synthetic fakes, which are you know, creations that don't resemble any one particular person. And I've already mentioned what our sort of approach and strategy to that is regarding notice and of course negotiation for compensation. And if it contains any recognizable features, then there, that additional consent provision is triggered. But for a specific actor who's gonna be using any digital technology, generative AI or otherwise, that creates a replica of them, they are absolutely covered under the digital replication provisions of this contract. Okay, thank you. Um, microphone one. Hello, everyone. Hello. Your name? Um, I'm Jesse, captain with these lovely uh, uh, captains from Paramount. And I'm gonna work through this and I'm gonna run out before I get attacked. Um, I 
participated in the WW meetings, and I come from the background world. And when I listened to those WW meetings, and I was terrified that background was going to be left in the dust. And every day I am listening for one solid reason why I should vote no on this contract and I can't, I can't hear it. Because you guys came so hard for background and I just, <laughs> like I was really terrified that we were not gonna be even considered for another three, six, 12, 24 years, whatever. And the way you guys came through for us, just I, I'm terrified that if this contract does not get ratified, that it will ruin a lot of people that need this because it, it is a life changer for a lot of people, uh, me included. And I just want to thank you. And with that, <laughs> I do have one hope. Um, part of background, there is sometimes we have to audition. And so if we have to audition, for a featured role in a background scene. I do hope that it's on your radar that we are considered for residuals. That's all. Thank you. Thank you so much. You should also thank uh, Ron Ostro and Samantha Hartson, your representatives on the negotiating committee. Those are our background experts. experts. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, going to microphone number two, please. Hi. Is it on? Hello. Yes. Hi, good evening. Kristen Ariza. Uh, I have a couple, I have a statement and a question. So I've heard a lot from the Zoom call the other night as well, a lot of uh, talk about if something happens because this is new, that claims need to be filed. Specifically with this summary that we've gotten so far, and my hopes is that this contract is different, but the contract should be written, not be written vaguely, and then clarified through litigation. A contract should be written with clarity and specifics and taken to litigation only if there is a breach. So one question is, do we have the administrative power to monitor closely, which has been said a lot tonight, what will ultimately become a, an abuse of power from the AMPTP? That's question one. My second question that I also had asked, Duncan, you had mentioned on a Zoom that uh, with regards to the um, bonus structure, that there was only a handful of shows that met that threshold of the 20% uh, sub, uh, subscriber, domestic subscriber to reach that threshold. So my question is, wh which shows? I would love to know the names of these handful of shows that actually met that because there are thousands of shows on any streaming service, streaming platform, and if only a handful have met this residual bonus, that doesn't bode well. And what I had said the other night on the Zoom was, unless you have Reese Witherspoon or the like uh, helming your show, most shows are the little show that could, that don't even get eyes uh, in those first 60 days. So I know it's been mentioned before that it's gonna take, that, that the AMPTP doesn't have any incentive to push shows to the top of their platform, but I'm just curious right now in, in the metrics used to put that on the contract, which shows were those? 
So to your first question about the administrative power to review what the AMPTP is doing, I'm assuming in that regard you're talking about AI, or I'm not, or I'm not sure exactly which provision you're referring to. But yes, we can speak about AI, but there's been a few things that it had mentioned. The NEGCOM committee, right. you know, said contract enforcement in yeah. general. Right. I yes. mean, yes. I mean, we have a whole team of staff whose job it is to yeah. do that. Now, I will note during this strike this summer. We, this has been an all hands on deck situation. So those of you who are out on picket lines probably know that a bunch of our staff who normally do other jobs were out there on those picket lines helping to make sure those picket lines could happen and things like that. So, so I do wanna say if during the course of the summer it took a little longer than usual for us to get back to you about something, I mean, we tried very hard to make sure that didn't impact uh, core activities like residuals processing, for example, or contract enforcement. Obviously, with the strike being over, uh, those staff are back to their regular duties and they'll be continuing to do that. And I fully expect that um, if this contract, when this contract is ratified, that we will need to add additional resources for contract enforcement. And that's something that uh, the National Board will see in a proposed budget from me uh, and our finance uh, CFO and our finance team in the coming fiscal year. But um, so yes, yeah, so we will have the resources that are needed to do that. Um, that's not to say it won't be a challenge. That's not to say we won't have to develop some new tools. As a matter of fact, one of the things we've been looking to do is harness AI to actually help us with our contract enforcement techniques. Because, you know, if they're going to use AI in the industry, we should use AI too to fight against any kind of unauthorized use or inappropriate um, action on the part of those companies. Um, as far as the handful of shows, maybe I should have said more than a handful. I'm not sure exactly how many shows fit in a hand, but it's not a huge number. It's like 40 or 50, something like that. I have to check. I, I suspect we, we do not have the ability to reveal the names of all of those shows publicly to the membership. Um, that's not uh, because um, there, there's not going to be you know, verification of that on an ongoing basis. There will be, and in fact, this contract contains a, a right for us to have a third party auditor verify the viewership figures by which those shows end up on the list. But what I really want to just emphasize to everyone is for us, you know, originally we wanted to tie this to revenue. We didn't originally want this to be the metric by which the money came in to the, what we were looking to do. Um, as in any negotiation, you don't get everything you want. So once, I think it was quite public how hard we fought for a revenue attachment, the CEOs made it clear directly to our faces they would never agree to a revenue attachment. So we had to pivot. And what we pivoted to is this metric which uses subscriber levels and viewership counts to determine essentially how much money comes in. Our goal was to make sure that that was enough money. It wasn't, we weren't fixated on the number of shows because we knew we wanted to get a distribution fund so that however many shows were on that list, as long as it generated enough money, it could be distributed in a way that actually made a difference for performers working in streaming. And that's what we did. So the projection that we've given you on the valuation of this number, which is approximately $40 million a year, that is based on actual data from last year in terms of how many shows hit the thresholds across all the streaming platforms and based on our projection, based on current viewership information that we have access to, how that looks for the coming term of the contract. Assuming that that projection is accurate and our projections in the past have been very accurate, then that amount of money will be generated and we intend to deploy it correctly 
in the way that we've talked about earlier in the presentation. So I, I guess what I'm saying to you is I think the what's more important than the number of shows is that it generates the amount of money that we need in order to make sure that people working in streaming can have that additional money to help create a sustainable career and not be um, not have that be made impossible by the short seasons and long hiatuses. That's the goal. Uh, no, I'm, uh, we're at time. I'm sorry. We, we have 30 more people here. I'm sorry. Fair enough. I will just leave with this. I understand the criteria and the 25%, but what you're saying about that 40% is that that 75 is going to the cast and whomever of the show, and then that 25 divvied up, we don't know how just yet. So you're saying right. that that is, is supposed to cover the rest of the people uh, contributing to streaming services, the rest of the shows. I mean, that's the, I, I don't know if it will cover all of the shows, but it will cover shows other than the ones that generate, you know, the, the other ones that already got paid from the 75%, let's put it that way. And, you know, would we like that figure to be higher? Yes. Do we expect to negotiate over that again in two and a half years? Yes. But you know what you have to do first is establish the structure. This is a structure that has never existed before in this contract. And um, now that we have it, all we have to do is negotiate to get more money into it. We don't have to Thank fight you. to create it again. And that's something that's really important in all of our contracts is build the structures and then we can build upon them. And that's what we did in this negotiation. Thank you. Microphone number one, please. Hi, uh, I'm Catherine Lidzone, newly elected to the LA Local Board and served as an alternate at the <laughs> National Board meeting where this contract, uh, the summary of the tentative agreement was voted upon. First of all, I just want to say I respect every single person on this stage tremendously. I know how hard you guys have worked. I've heard how hard you guys have worked. I, we need you. So thank you, thank you for everything you're doing. I just, I just want to share some concerns, so I'm going to be using my time as a statement, and it is going to involve questions that I think all the members need to be thinking about. So here are my concerns for you and for them. For member context, not only were we not provided the full MOA contract language before the national board vote, but union leadership also did not share more specific 100-page-plus proposed contract language from the negotiating committee for pre-review. The only documentation we received was provided 30 minutes before a meeting, which arguably determines the fate of 160,000 members. My questions for leadership and members to think about. One, why did the press get notified before membership was alerted of an end to the strike? Two, you say the AMPTP threatened to cancel shows. Why is this an acceptable reason for stopping negotiations? Is this not classic fear-mongering that the AMPTP is famous for? Why was the official union language strike is over, and I quote, when technically the strike was actually suspended and not only did the membership nor the national board not yet vote for the tentative agreement, they haven't even had the opportunity to read it. Three, you say we used all leverage we could, but this is inherently not true. Why did we never call for a boycott on streaming companies? If you are so passionate about the inimitable value of humans in performance, why did we not secure this definition in negotiations? We know historically that it has never happened where membership has not ratified the contract after a national board approval. In my opinion, it is fear-mongering from our own union leadership to tell us that a worse deal is expected should we stand for better terms. If producers are not required to change the footage in the event of violation of consent, what is to stop them from intentionally betraying what we have given them permission for and taking a slap on the wrist, fine hit, for doing so? 
How can we trust that the streaming fund will not be mismanaged considering some members have not satisfactory, had satisfactory results from myriad complaints filed in regards to unpaid residuals? Who determines what constitutes as substantially as scripted? What if there's a disagreement that the journeyman actor cannot afford to pursue in court? And finally, why do we still have no protections over the intellectual property provided in self-tapes, which ultimately is exploited by the AMPTP for profit? Thank you. I do think you are all amazing. I just, these are the things that we care about and can't afford to pursue on our own. We don't have the name status. We don't have the power. We don't have the money. This is why we need our union. Thank you. So I'm going to assume, I, I counted one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten questions in there. I'm going to assume that I'm not going to respond to the process questions, that those are more rhetorical. And I'll just focus on the substance questions, um, since that's what I assume is most relevant to this meeting. And if I try to respond to all ten of them, then no one else is going to get to ask any questions. Um, so I guess, uh, number one, the definition of actors, uh, we already talked about that, I already answered that question, so I'm not going to just repeat that answer, but I don't think you should want a definition of actors as humans that doesn't actually achieve anything other than a feel-good moment and is unenforceable and doesn't protect you from replacement by synthetics or by digital replicas. That's why that's not in there. Um, number two, uh, you know, I don't, cons I think... It's it is uh, my responsibility and everybody's responsibility up here to be language. honest with you That's about what will happen in the event that there is a <laughs> no vote on this contract. Actors. And respectfully, I think describing that as fear-mongering is completely and utterly wrong. It's not fear-mongering at all. You should know what the consequences of your actions are, and there are consequences. There will be consequences to a choice not to ratify this contract, just like there are consequences to a choice of ratifying it. And so, you know, I've been very careful not to fearmonger and to give you the most accurate description that I can of what I think could happen in the event that a, a, the contract is not ratified. And ultimately, it's the member's choice whether they do or don't do that. Um, as far as the, this statement about concern about mismanagement of the streaming fund, uh, we've had a, a similar fund in our sound recordings code for more than 10 years. So far as I'm aware, there's never been any assertion of mismanagement or concerns about that. You talk about um, your concern about residuals payments not being made on time. Residuals payments are not managed by a jointly trusted fund. Residuals payments are made by the companies directly, and then we process them. So this is a completely different process, and I, I don't think you should have any reason to be concerned about mismanagement of a jointly trusted fund. As a matter of fact, this provides a kind of flexibility and opportunity to give more people access to the equivalent of, of the streaming bonus payments. I think members should be excited about that, not fearful of a streaming fund. Um, and let's see. Uh, you said that there's no protections to your IP and your self-tapes, so the intellectual property that's created in terms of, of the self-tapes, there is a prohibition, if I recall correctly, and Ray will correct me if I'm wrong, there is a uh, prohibition on any use being made of those self-tapes for any purpose other than auditions, and so that is a, a limitation on their having any right to your intellectual property created in your self-tapes. Um, as far as, uh, you know, did we use all of our leverage? You said that we should have engaged in a boycott of streaming companies. I can assure you we had a full discussion of that. And the negotiating committee did consider when the appropriate time 
to pull the trigger on that was. By the way, during the part of this strike in which there was the Writers Guild going on and there was overlap, that was also a topic that would have required coordination between us and discussions between us. But ultimately, uh, it wasn't because of a threat to cancel shows. It wasn't that anybody was intimidated by that. It was a realization and a recognition of actual economic reality in the industry, which was that there were going to be shows canceled. There were shows canceled, by the way, probably possibly some of you worked on them that were canceled as a result of these circumstances. And so it's not a question of a threat or bowing to a threat from the companies. It was a question of evaluating when our maximum leverage would be. And they didn't want to cancel those projects. They didn't want to have uh, theatrical releases that they had to cancel, which gave us more leverage. And that's why, in my view, we were able to get the concessions on generative AI that we got on the last day of the strike is because we use that leverage correctly. I understand people may have a different view on that. That's certainly fine, but I'm just saying that from my perspective, that's the, um, that's the answer. And then as far as substantially as scripted, who's going to interpret that? Well, we'll interpret it in determining if there was compliance or not with that provision. And if there's a dispute over that, we'll take it to grievance and arbitration and a neutral arbitrator will interpret it just like every other provision in the contract. Thank you. Jack. No, are we going to let Jack talk? Yes. No, okay. what? Should we well, put it up to that, a vote? That's a hard act to follow. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> Welcome to the board, Catherine. All right, um, you're taking his time up. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, Jack, uh, Jack Herman, 35-year uh, member. Thank you. Uh, okay. uh, uh, member of the Sexual uh, Harassment Committee and co-chair of the uh, Child Protection Subcommittee. I've been a... I've been a burr in your side for the last couple of years, uh, pouring over every single contract of this union as it, as it re relates to uh, child protection, the education, the welfare, uh, and hiring of minors. My condominium turned into a scene from the paper chase. Uh, that's how many contracts I had scattered all over the floor. And, and sadly, uh, and, and first of all, I respect everybody in this room. I respect every single one of you. I've got to know so many of you during this action all of you, all of you that walked the line, all of you that were out there day after day doing what you needed to do to get these folks up there to get what we need, even if there are disagreements. I myself, I'm, I'm fundamentally disappointed, though, that we didn't go further in revising Section 50 of the CBA, and that's regarding the protection of minor members. I'm grateful for the gains. Say it into the microphone. I'm sorry. We missed that um, last part. I, I said I'm fundamentally disappointed that we did not go further in revising Section 50 of the CBA regarding uh, the protection of minor members. I'm grateful for the gains we did achieve and that the door that's been opened for further discussion down the road. And I'm going to be there down the road watching and listening um, and, and getting involved. Um, I would like to ask one fundamental question regarding the background checks, which is located in Section 18. That's that long list that we didn't get into, uh, which is paragraph G. And it has to do with a phrase called may. Uh, in subparagraph 1, it says the producer may conduct a background check as it pertains to teachers, etc. And subparagraph 2, it says the producer may require a background check as a condition of employment. Why does it not say? Uh, shall or will? Why does it say may? So uh, it says may because it is within the producer's discretion to determine whether that background check 
is warranted. What the producers needed from us was our consent to be able to do that. And that consent was granted in the course of this negotiation in order to encourage them to perform those background checks. So we granted them what they needed in order to do what it is that you want them to do in the course of this negotiation. We also achieved an improvement for legally emancipated minors to receive education. Um, all the other proposals that you're referencing to amend Section 50 were all thoroughly considered uh, and vetted in the wages and working conditions process. But uh, outside of a few of the proposals that we achieved, not, not all of them were brought to the table. Um, I say that in a context of us having brought to the table the the most substantial proposal package we have ever delivered to the AMPTP. It was over 40 pages of proposals. It was quite a, a wump that uh, sounded when we dropped that on the table. So, you know, we were not stingy about the proposals that we brought to this negotiations. We brought certain proposals for minor performers. We achieved certain proposals for minor performers. We understand that you have a desire to harmonize use our contract to harmonize state law provisions and that's something we can continue to examine right uh, but it was not something that was brought to the table here and i understand that and i appreciate that do you consider though the word may a loophole where producers will exploit to not bring background checks to the uh, to the set i don't consider it a loophole in this context because they want to do the background checks which is why they asked for our consent to do it so we we gave them what they asked for Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Microphone number one, please. I'm Tim Blaney. I'm a member of the Puppeteers Committee. And I'm Kristen Charney. I'm uh, co-chair of the SAG Puppeteers Committee. <clears throat> My, uh, I have two questions. The first is about the generative AI, of course. Uh, in the puppeteers community, there is much concern about specific language in section two, subsection two. That language is, does not apply to non-human characters. The large percentage of a puppeteer's work is bringing non-human characters to life, sometimes as a single performer and sometimes as part of a group. We play anthropomorphic characters, creatures, monsters, inanimate objects like furniture, plants, etc., 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 and most of those are non-human. If this contract is ratified, is there anything that can be done to protect puppeteers from this specific language? So, sure, th first of all, thank you for the question. And I just wanna, so everyone's clear, we're talking now about generative AI specifically. Yes. That's in the generative AI section um, of, the, of the contract. And it's interesting because I got, a, I got a previous question about this, not from puppeteers, but from performers who work in certain types of sci-fi projects where they portray non-human characters. And the concern was, what's the scope of this um, and does it incorporate us or, or not? And the understanding as to what this language refers to is non-humanoid characters, meaning uh, things like uh, you know, something that doesn't appear to have been created with a human as the base for that character. So that was the answer for them, and I think they were largely satisfied with that answer. I'm not sure that answer is as satisfying for puppeteers, 
other than just to note like what we're fighting for or we're fighting here in terms of synthetic character generation is hard to distinguish from animation when you talk about something that is completely non non-human in form at all so i guess the question that i would ask you is or that i would ask you to consider is how we distinguish that between animation and a generative AI synthetic creation of a non-human appearing character. And um, you know, I think that is an area where we're gonna have to continue to work. We certainly don't want puppeteers' livelihoods to be impacted by that, but uh, defining that distinction in contract language is a bit of a challenge. Let me add as well that the definition of synthetic performer includes anything that is voiced by a human performer. So if no, he's answering the question. Uh, giving it a voice, the, problem is the language some people that you're talking the, about it would be The jargon that they have to put in the contract is and not And while I'm talking, I want to supplement my answer to Jack. And just let you know, Jack, that he did bring a proposal and a proposal that for welfare workers, teachers, or anyone who performs a similar function on set, the background checks are mandatory. No, because I'm glad we have a competent person leading this war. It's important for everybody I, I, in the next yeah, seven generations and forward. He's right. We, we don't have any guards. Yeah, we're not going to get through all this. We, we have, have to remember that those minutes, people, so. the, the producers and the companies, they have the money. Mm -hmm. Well, that that's what we've been is, trying to do, but people have not listened to what I've said. It's always been that way. Artists so. have always been patrons. Um, have so, you answered you know, your question? We can't think of Duncan? them. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah I think we're good. It's kind of like okay. why would we think I don't about have any countries, right? As I just want to say, is there anyone on the line that doesn't um, that has a question that's not AI? Just <laughs> we have okay. common interests, right? We need each other in order to make the things. Right, right. So, but there, well, needs, there needs to be guidelines. We've heard a lot of AI there's questions. There's no guidelines right now, and there's other issues here. We need to make the structure so, for it so right. it can keep building on okay. it. Okay. And in legal well, formats can, and the climate oh, that we live what? in in reality, so hold on. like they in reality is this. Okay. He's right. Of course. This is where we are. Okay. My other question is regarding so performance capture. Puppeteers often do work that is very related to performance capture. We often puppeteer characters during principal photography, deliver dialogue, take direction from the director, that will be animated in post. And we have to fight to keep our principal contracts for these roles. So we've often even been told by SAG to sign an inappropriate contract and grieve it later. Are these jobs now considered performance capture? No, there's a complete separate definition of puppeteers that remains in the agreement. So those jobs are not now considered performance capture. Um, if I'm recalling the circumstance, well, I don't know what specific circumstance you're referring to where folks have been asked to sign an inappropriate contract and grieve. Yeah, but th that is a situation where there were specific facts present that made it more advantageous to pursue that route rather than asking people to give up work potentially and file a, and, and then file a grievance. So, um, you know, we could talk more about that. It's probably more specific than the whole room needs to hear about, but the combination of duties that were involved created some trouble for us uh, in that circumstance. And, and, and by the way, it is labor law that we cannot instruct you not to work 
except for a very narrowly defined set of circumstances that involve safety. Um, if, those, if the issue could be resolved in a grievance, we're actually required to grieve it. We can't say to a performer, uh, stop rendering services, that's considered a wildcat strike and it generates liability for the union and potentially for you. So unfortunately, we are sometimes in a situation where that is the advice that we have to give you. That's good. <laughs> okay, so uh, Terry, and I think because there's so many people here, we have 10 minutes. And I wanna take as many as I can, but let's have a list of both the lines so the next time we have another in, in, um, session, right, then they can ask their questions. Duncan? We're gonna have a webinar on Saturday. Yeah, so then you could write them down or... And then once the uh, MOA is released, then we'll have another more meaningful conversation, I'm sure. And we have until December 5th, so... Yeah. Why don't we take mic two? Okay, let's take mic two. Is it on something other than AI? It, it, we'll, we'll be quick. We'll be okay. talk so fast. Here we go. <laughs> Hi, my name is Andrew Leeds. I'm an LA local board member. Uh, uh, that, that's nice. Part of the reason that I ran was because I, I felt there was a little bit of a lack of transparency uh, going into the negotiation, which I didn't feel with the, the WGA, which I'm also a member of. So I ran to try to be to get transparency and to get uh, to get um, uh, information to our members, which is why I would like to interview some of the staff to talk about the contract points, because I feel like I could ask a lot of good questions and get those out there. So I hope that could happen, so I can bring some information to these very complex things, which cannot be done right here, right now, obviously. So I'm sure there's a lot of great things. Here's my quick question for you. Okay, I get hired for uh, uh, a one-day guest star, okay? One-day guest star on, uh, on any show, it doesn't matter. Um, and uh, and they say to me, oh, they, they show me the script, and I, they crammed all my scenes into one day, of course, because they wanted to only pay me for one day, right? But it turns out there's another scene, there's a party scene that I'm, like, I have to be at the party because it makes sense, and I'm in the background, right? But they're gonna scan me on, on day one, right? They're not shooting the party scene for like another two weeks, right? So they're gonna pay me for day one, and then they're gonna pay me for the party scene, right? So normally, I would have gotten a top of show guest star, I would have made around, in the whole contract, like $9,500. Now I'm gonna be making around two times 1082. So is that the case or am I wrong? Am I gonna go from making $9,500 to making uh, two times 1082, so around $2,200? Do you follow that? I don't follow what's different in that situation as a result of any of the contract well, terms. Because if I was hired for more than one day on a uh, on a network show and now these other shows, they would have to pay me for the full episode, which was a lot of the way that people make their money and make their health insurance. And this happened to a friend of mine on a Shonda Rhyme show uh, about seven months ago, um, where he wasn't paid his top of show because they were able to get around it by doing that. Are we protected for that? The, the one day exception is still in the, in the contract. What has changed is that there will be circumstances now where you will be able to get that top of show major role for high budget S-Bot half hours, right. high budget S-Bot hours, first season of pay TV, Great. I'm happy where you about wouldn't that. have gotten it before. Right, but if they can scan me on day one and then use me on day eight, they only have to pay me for two days and not for the full eight days, is that correct? No, because the digital replica section has a minimum for payment of use. Right. And the standard of that for an yeah. employment-based digital replica is the number of days okay. you would have had to work right. had they not used the digital so replica. So I get the intervening days too if that's, what, if that's no, what happens. Not the intervening days, but the number of days that you would have had to do the work. So. Oh, well, but, 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 but I would have gotten top of show. I would have gotten eight days. Now I'm only getting two days. Is that what you're saying? 
I don't understand why you would have gotten top of show before, but not now. Because, well, major role performer, top of show, guest star, if it's more than one day, you get the full run. Yeah, but they could also just engage you on two-day contracts for that right now. No, they couldn't. They have to engage you for the major role. They don't have to. You might negotiate. They do. If they engage you as a guest star, you don't have to get the major role. On a network show, you absolutely do. It's 100% and positive if one of the staff wants to speak to that. If you are engaged as a guest star, that's your billing on you a network to, show. You have to get the major role, which means you are paid on the basis of a five-day guarantee for a half hour, right. an eight-day guarantee right. for an hour. Nothing about AI or you can anything do a one day guest star on a changes that. You can do a one-day guest star on a network show, right? So I'm saying if they do a one-day guest star and then they scan you, and then they scan you and they use you on that other day where they're going to pay you for that day, they're no longer going to pay you for the major role, or they are. They, no, because the, because you're no longer uh, you're it's no longer one day. So the one day exception is only if they get you in one so day. So we are going to get the, the digital though. replica is now triggering a second day of okay. employment for you. So the one they're not going to be able to access the one day exception. So we would get the major role. Yeah, you get the major role. Okay, great, and the, that's fantastic. And do we get the intervening days if they decide to shoot it? Um, to shoot that scene that they're going to put me into a month later. They shoot the scene. You're, you're going to get the major role guarantee. Right. What about um, the intervening days? The consecutive employment, your yeah. intervening days for a month, you wouldn't get that now. I wouldn't get it now? Why not? Because you'd get dropped and picked up. Because there are now more drop pickups than there used to be in the contract, right? Well, there are there are now yeah. more drop and pickups, but yeah. there were drop and pickups before. Right, but there was and one. if you were going to yeah. have a month-long gap, yeah. you were going to get A lot dropped. of people were making no, a lot of money that way, though. Okay. Um, I just want to say you're, thank you to the people that are leaving. We appreciate your attendance, and we will have more opportunities to have a dialogue about this for those that are unable to be uh, heard. I'll uh, take one more question. Microphone one, please. Since we have uh, one question left, we're going to group Myra Lisa and Rodney together. Okay. That's okay with you. Quick. Okay. We have... Hi, I'm Myra Lise, I'll uh, strike captain for um, Party Mount and Disney. <laughs> I want to say thank you so much to the um, negotiating committee. I know how hard you guys have worked on this contract and the comments that have been coming on online about throwing you guys, throwing us under the bus, I know is not true. You guys have been working really hard and have our backs. I do have a question for um, stunts. Um, I am an actor. But I told this person, she, since she couldn't be here, that I would ask this question. Um, that the AI protections gives no guardrails for stunts, no protections at all. In fact, it does the opposite, including allowing us to be replaced with scans to double actors if production deems necessary and officially allow them to make contracts official, which will heavily affect the residuals of many performers who spent weeks or months building the action, but the only credit you'll get from the potential single day it actually took to shoot. Unless they use a scan so they can get nothing. Is that true or what is the actual, are they protected? So, so first of all, appreciate that. And by the way, appreciate your being a captain. We ran into each other a lot out on the picket lines. So thank you for that. Number one, it's not true that there are no guardrails in AI for stunt performers. We sort of talked about this earlier but especially in the generative AI section, 
the provisions that require notice and negotiation over compensation are a huge protection against the use of synthetic fakes in place of stunt performers because it gives us the ability to make sure that those uh, synthetic fakes actually cost something real so that the companies do not have an economic incentive to do that. And I think it's really a mistake to underestimate the importance of that provision because especially with respect to stunt performers, that is one of the primary concerns that they should have that's unique to stunt performers because of the fact that so much of the work that they do is not attached to a recognizable element, which is why synthetic fakes are such a risk in that particular area and why that provision is so important. As to the remaining parts of the contract, it is true that there may be some stunt jobs that are impacted by principal performers choosing to grant consent to their digital replica being used for something that would otherwise have been done by a stunt performer. So that's a legitimate concern. Um, that's why I said we we're gonna, but, but I would say it's not a concern that stunt performers don't have protections if there's a digital replica created of them. They have the exact same protection as everybody else in that regard. And it certainly is something that we're gonna monitor during the course of the term of this contract to make sure that we do not have a, 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 a burgeoning problem in the area of stunt performers' job protection. Just one more statement, sorry. He's not Hi, Rodney Van Johnson. This is, not, this is just a, a, an idea. 160 members. The biggest, the biggest way in order to control AI is to be able to control AI. What we need to do is we need to be able to create our own platform. If we're going to do AI, we need to create our own platform, meaning that you create your own platform that has your own bank of people. We monitor everything. We sell or we give or we, uh, or we allow the... Um, uh, studios to use our platform, not a third-party platform, not, not a third-party platform, but our platform that you all create. It's the exact same thing. So what's going to happen is when they come in and they ask for so and so, we already have the data. They don't have to go and get the third data. So the data we own, data we own everything. You create a whole platform. You have your own so your own, own software. I spoke to this with um, Jason. And I think it would be a very good idea because right now you're trying to monitor something you can't control at all. So if you have the, if you can control it, then you are in control. If I can control all these spaces out here, it's 160 people, 160,000 uh, people. That's not a whole lot of people to monitor in a system. So if you create your own platform, you give it to the studios, they have to use your platform. That way you control everything. I was wrong. Thank Thanks, It's a great point. It's one that we've uh, been what? working on and we'll continue to work on as well. Oh. Yeah. So I just want to let you all know that if it was up to us, we would go through the line and hear every one of these questions. Okay, careful. But, but it would, it's prohibitive for us to do that because the Palladium has to close. We have a lot of people working here. So um, write your questions down and we'll address them on... No, you're saying no, you don't want to do that? Address them on the webinar. We're in overtime here. Okay, because we're in overtime. And um, is, we... Mayor Constantine. It's up to you, Mr. Well, they're debating if they want to keep the time going or not. Something about Constantine. All right. Um, 
So, no, I'm sorry, we have to leave. Otherwise, we'll be in overtime, triple overtime. It's, okay? it's, it's, it becomes prohibitive for us. I just want to thank you, especially all the captains here, everyone who has supported the negotiating team, because we could not have done that without your support, really. And Jody, can I just remind everybody, if you didn't get a chance to ask your question, you can send your question to tvtheatrical2023 at sagafter.org. We'll respond to it in writing by email. We will have another webinar of, uh, for everybody on Saturday, so you can come to that and ask your questions as well. There's all the information on the website at sagafter.org slash contracts 2023. And we look forward to seeing you at an upcoming chance to continue this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. That's a wrap for now.